Don't let anyone tell you you can't get something done. I'll explain in just a moment. This is Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunda. Joined on a banger of an episode by Lee Ellis of No Dunks. You know him as an appreciator of very solid plays. Well, the Jazz this season, many very solid plays. We talk Jazz basketball and also look at how it compares to the league, the teams that the Jazz are being compared to, and more. But how have Jazz fans accomplished their goals? How have they done something and mobilized in a way that has impressed me this week? Now, not only is Donovan in the top five of guards in the Western Conference impressive, he'll need to do a lot of catching up in the votes. So as always, when the Jazz tweet out hashtag NBA All-Star and Donovan Mitchell, retweet counts as a vote. You can do it as well. But look out for those tweets as opportunities to help Donovan out. But that was impressive in its own right. But the one that blew me away is cyberbullying the ringer's Kevin O'Connor into a jazz video. Of all the power rankings that were out there that everybody was looking at at the beginning of the week, the ringers stood out because the jazz were at number six. So what did jazz fans do? Of course, they raised a ruckus. They told KLC, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Team's better than that. 20 and 5, you know the metrics, top 5 offense, top 5 defense, the 3 point shooting is amazing, perimeter shooters all over the park, Jordan Clarkson is bringing up the rear at oh just 38%, other than that you've got Royce, Boyan, Joe, Donovan, 40% from 3, high volume team, everybody knows it, KOC didn't at the beginning of the week, so Jazz fans alert him to this. And then he follows up with a tweet about describing an athlete with just vibes, and he quote tweets with Joe Ingles. Okay, the detente has begun. And it culminates with that video. It's a good video. Check it out. It's in the podcast description. We like the people at The Ringer. Logan Murdoch came on this pod a couple weeks ago. They know and recognize that the Jazz are good. But if you want to see exact reasons that national media are starting to get in on this team and trying to figure out what's working, check out that video. Does a good overview for just baseline things that everybody's talking about. And I know detractors are the ones that get pub trying to be different. The hipster sports take. Right now, the Jazz are playing well. Can't really argue with it. Will they get the respect when it comes All-Star Game, All-NBA? All-Star Game, I think they're pretty much locked in with those two guys, Rudy and Donovan, making repeat appearances. Mike would be such a big coup as far as getting him on the team. Look at what he did in Memphis. The most underrated point guard. Best point guard never to make an All-Star team. Well, I could change this here. Would be a nice honor for a guy that has played so well this season and has played so well his entire career. But we'll follow that as it goes along. Fans vote, media votes for the starters, and then the coaches pick the rest of that team. If the Jazz stay as one of the top squads in the West, good argument for three players on the squad. As always, help others find the podcast. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. 
iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. We're on all the major podcast carriers. Find us there. Help others find as well. Lee Ellis of No Ducks. We started off in a little weird place. In promoting his appearance on the podcast, he went on No Dunks and said he was going on a jazz podcast. Bet they're going to ask me my favorite jazz musicians. Well, I had to do that. That's where we started. I asked him to name his top five jazz musicians of all time. Please enjoy our conversation with Lee Ellis. Man, man, what a start. I don't think I've ever started a, uh, a podcast with that sort of question before. And, um, you know, look, I'm not a huge jazz musician uh, aficionado. I'll say that, you know, I'll say that. Um, but you like I, jazz basketball. We've yeah, I absolutely love jazz basketball. In fact, you know, in Toronto, uh, where I used to live, there's a very, very big and popular jazz festival every year, which uh, I've been to that a few times because it's a great, great time of year. It's usually late in the summer, so it's really good. In fact, a friend of mine performed in a band uh, one time, not really jazz, but just more a, you know, sort of musical band or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he was great, but um, yeah, so top five uh, jazz musicians. Wow. Okay. Well, um, let, let's start with the low hanging fruit. Let's go number one. I think Louis Armstrong has to be number one. Mm-hmm. I mean, Good I point. think that's, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I mean, he, he's the most well-known, I, I would say. I mean, for me, anyway, Louis Armstrong is the most well-known, so I'll, I'll I'll slot him in there at number one. I don't think I have too many angry fans coming after me for saying that one. <laughs> uh, number two, um, Louis Hive activate. Louis, yeah, exactly. Come together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, the Miles say, Davis Hive is so angry that they're yeah, not number one. Well, I hope they won't be too upset at number two. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be number two to anybody, it's gonna be Louis Armstrong. So I'll put I'll slot Louis uh, Miles Davis in there at number two. Okay. I'll take him. Now, um, I'm going to put in uh, Dizzy Gillespie at number three, but here's why. Ooh. Here's why. There's a famous Australian cricketer whose name was Jason Gillespie, or his name is Jason Gillespie. So he just got the nickname Dizzy Gillespie. So he became kind of famous for that. So I'm going to slot Dizzy Gillespie in there, combining a little bit of my cricket upbringing with some uh, jazz musicians. Um, I guess Ella Fitzgerald, number four. Why not? Um, Solid pick. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, I think that's the best slot. That's the best available slot remaining. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's put her in there. And then, um, oh man, I'm going to go Gellington. Char- uh, yeah, or Charlie Parker. I'll, I'll say Charlie okay. Parker. I'll go with Charlie there at number five. So uh, I mean, this is a tough top five, man. Whoa, um, you know. But uh, hopefully, hopefully people will agree with that one, and they'll just understand why Dizzy Dizzy is probably a little bit higher than a lot of people would have him, but. Uh, Again, it's my uh, it's my cricket connection, so I'm going to try to combine both of those in there. <laughs> Duke Ellington, Sydney Bichette fans, find Lee Ellis on Twitter, <laughs> attack him there. That's that's where you need to go to make sure that he doesn't leave them on a future top five jazz musicians yeah. list. The reason why we brought you on, Joe Ingles, he passes John Stockton. Where does this rank in Australian sports history? Is it up there with the Tim Cahill goal? Is it it there with uh, Kathy Freeman getting the gold in Sydney? Where is it in terms of the basketball excellence that Joe has has decided to share? Well, um, those two that you bring up, Tim Cahill, I think you're talking about 2006 in Germany, uh, the goal against Japan, which tied it. 
Yeah, and then, uh, uh, yeah, he tied it and then he hit scored another one to put us up 2-1, uh, which was our first ever victory in a World Cup game, which was incredible. We were down 1-0 to uh, Japan. And we actually got out of that group too. We had Brazil in that group. We had Croatia in that group. And we got out and then we played Italy in the next round. And uh, a tough penalty there, knocked us out there. Tough, tough penalty. So that one really does stand out for me because it was such an important moment in Australia's soccer slash football history. Now, Kathy Freeman winning the 2000 in Sydney, one of the most iconic and monumental moments in Australian sporting history, simply because of the pressure she was under to actually go out there and perform, you know, like that was... Uh, that I think she... Uh, no, she wasn't the flag bearer. I think Andrew Gaze was the flag bearer that year, but it was... It was so set up for Kathy Freeman to go out there and perform. She had that cat suit on that space suit yep. and the whole of Australia was hoping she would be able to do it. Now, when you've got that much pressure on you, you know, to perform is incredibly difficult, but she was able to do that. So that's, that's probably one of the top, you know, three or four moments ever in Australian sporting history. So Joe holding the, uh, you know, the, the Utah jazz three point record, I mean, it's great. It looks at, I'll say this as, as a basketball fan from Australia growing up in the eighties and nineties, we barely had any Australians playing in the NBA. Luke Longley was drafted in 91 by the Timberwolves. Andrew Gaze had a cup of coffee there with the Washington bullets and Shane Hill came along and played uh, 1996. So did Mark Bradkey, but we didn't really have any star players. They were kind of role players. Luke Longley was good, but even he, you know, he wasn't a star player, uh, even though the Timberwolves hoped he could have been. So now that when I look around the NBA, there's so much representation of Australians within the league. I think it's just incredible. And so for, for any of those guys to hold a record, I think it's just an incredible achievement. The only thing is with Joe, it's only temporary. It is only temporary. He's only going to hold on to this for yeah. probably, I mean, two more seasons, maybe three, hopefully. But obviously Donovan Mitchell, it's just a matter of time before he surpasses uh, Joe Ingalls. I think he's about... Uh, 350 behind somewhere in that ballpark so you know joe's got a couple more seasons to sort of pad his numbers there and, and hold on to it but uh but but donovan mitchell is going to get it but you know joe's story is himself is actually incredible because he played in australia he played in europe and he went to the clippers first and the clippers you know kind of signed him but then they had to cut him and doc rivers at the time said you know i really didn't want to have to cut joe ingles i know he's going to get picked up by another team and the jazz swooped in and grabbed him and uh, now he's an, been a, a really important part of that, that team's identity, I think, the last three or four years as he's grown in his role and really become, uh, you know, a part of what you, uh, what you think about with the Utah Jazz. And it's funny because when he signed with the Jazz, I remember I, I got a tweet from someone who said, you know, what, what do you expect for Joe Ingles from the Utah Jazz? And this person has sent this tweet back to me a few times because I said, I said look, I, I think he's probably going to be a deep rotation player you know, I hope he hangs on for a year or two. I, I think he'll probably bounce around a couple of NBA teams, but he might end up back in Europe. And this person loves sending that tweet back to me to say, look at Joe Ingalls now, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm so happy to be wrong uh, about that because, you know, Joe's not super athletic. He's not super quick, but he's got an incredible basketball IQ and he really understands how to play to his strengths, you know, I mean, he, he, he's a fantastic player. He can, he can go inside, run that pick and roll beautifully with Rudy. He steps out and hits a three. He's versatile. He comes off the bench when he, when he needs to, he starts when, uh, if there's, if he's uh, replacing someone like Mike Conley, who's out with an injury in the, in the starting lineup. So to have a guy who can be so um, versatile like that, I, I think is just incredible. 
And so I'm really happy to see just how much Joe has, has really squeezed out of his NBA career. Because yeah, as I say, when he first came in, I thought, I'm not sure he's going to last all that long. But uh, he's proved me wrong. And I guess I, I think he's probably proved himself wrong too in a, in a lot of ways. Um, because he's now uh, such a great uh, player and such an important piece. And now he's setting records. I, mean, I think he's only about... 34,000 points away from Carl Malone. So, uh, you know, that's uh, while he's still playing, that record is still uh, still there. You can still maybe have another couple by the time he's done. Look out for more records with the Jazz <laughs> yeah. with Joe. Uh, how far has it come from when you were watching Andrew Gaze and, and he's a star at Seton Hall to where we are now with Australia in the game? Now the Jazz have an Australian owner in the yes. fold to add to not only the fact that they have one of the best Australian players on the team. I, I mean, that, that's the thing because, um, you know, we, we grew up, basketball's a huge game in Australia. Everyone, every kid sort of plays it um, in, in winter and maybe in the summer as well. Not, not always, but it's just such a game because it's indoors. If you don't play the sort of outdoor sports like rugby or Australian football in the winter, you play indoors. And then if you don't play cricket in the summer, then maybe you play a bit of basketball as well, boys and girls. And, and you know, a lot of my upbringing, a lot of my social sort of uh, life revolved around going to play basketball or playing with friends or, you know, birthday parties and things like that were friends you made from the basketball stadium. So it was a very big part of my life. But of course, in the late 80s and early 90s, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cable TV or anything like that. So we had to just survive on sort of scraps of information, um, you know, that we could get uh, from, from the NBA. And I used, to, I used to buy USA Today newspapers and, and scroll through box scores like that. We used to get Hoop Magazine and Basketball Digest. And then slowly in the, in the early 90s, we started getting more and more uh, basketball highlights and basketball actual games to watch, which was, which was awesome. I mean, it was just so great. But of course, it was still, you know, without an Australian connection. So when those guys, as we mentioned there, you know, Heal and Bradkey started coming along, it was great, but we, we needed a star. And then, uh, as you guys know, out in Utah, uh, Andrew Bogut was the number one pick right. in 2005. Um, so that really put Australia on the map because, you know, if you're the number one pick, it doesn't matter where you're from, your expectations are huge. Now, obviously, he didn't play for the Jazz. Uh, he went to the Milwaukee Bucks, but, but we knew about him playing their uh, college basketball out in Utah. And then since then, there's been other guys, you know, Dante Exum, of course, with the Utah Jazz. I mean, when he came to the Jazz, what was that, 2014, I think he was taking the number fifth pick, number five pick. And Dante, I didn't know a whole lot about him other than what I'd seen him playing juniors and, um, you know, uh, high-level basketball for Australia. And I thought, great, this guy's athletic, he's fast. This is a great situation for him to be in. Unfortunately, the injuries kind of caught up with Dante. We didn't really get a chance to see the best of him. But still, he was taken number five there. Um, so it was a great pick. And then we've had Paddy Mills. We've had Aaron Baines. You know, obviously, Ben Simmons is now, he was the number one pick. He was rookie of the year. He's been an all-star for the Philadelphia 76ers. So we're seeing, you know, legit star talent on these teams, which is incredible. And not only that, I'm not sure if you are. I'm sure you are, actually. Dante Exum and Ben Simmons, their dads both played in the Australian Basketball League. So I remember watching their dads play, you know, and Kyrie Irving's dad, Kyrie was born in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, his dad, Dederick Irving he, Irving, he also played in the Australian League. And Brett Brown, the former Sixers coach, mm -hmm. he coached in the Australian League. He coached Ben Simmons' dad, you know, and then he was coaching Ben Simmons, uh, you know, 25, 30 years later, which is just incredible. So, you know, for, for us in Australia, we would watch our local league and see these guys and they were good. You know, the standard was good, but it wasn't the NBA. And now here I am 
you know, 30 years later, I'm like, oh my God, I'm watching the kids of these guys I used to watch play in our, in our NBL league. And these kids are, you know, far better than their uh, parents were, their dads were. Uh, and, and it's just incredible to see. So, um, you know, and, and the, now we've got Josh Green, who was drafted by the Dallas Mavericks this season. I mean, uh, he's, he's another guy who played out of Arizona. I obviously hope he can uh, become a, a very good player for the Mavericks. So uh, we're seeing more and more players come through over the years. And uh, it's just incredible for me to see how far Basketball Australia has come. Well, even LaMelo going over there. And, right. And, and RJ Hampton going abroad as well. He was in New Zealand, though, right? That's right. Yeah, it was the Australian League, but he played for the New Zealand Is there team, a rivalry yeah. there? Rivalry oh, yeah. there? Yeah, you know, of course. Between Stephen Adams and, and your boomers? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, for Australia and New Zealand growing up, like it's like the big brother, little brother, brother syndrome, you know, like like we always just want to beat New Zealand at anything. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, I'm not a huge rugby fan, but anytime Australia and New Zealand play rugby, it's like, I don't care if we don't beat anybody else. I just want to beat New Zealand. That's all I care about. You know, when it comes to cricket and uh, you know, the soccer world cup, we, so New Zealand made the soccer world cup for the first time in a long time. Uh, When was it? 2014, I think it was. Uh, But Australia wasn't in their group. Uh, so unfortunately we didn't get an Australia versus New Zealand game because prior to that qualifying for the world cup, there was a one slot for the Oceania group and it basically came down to Australia versus New Zealand. Oh, and then we actually had to play like a qualifier from, from South America or Asia after that. But it was always that, that one Oceania, um, spot basically came down to us versus New Zealand. We would always beat them. So that was great. But, uh, you know, the, the standard of competition wasn't all that good. But, uh, you know, I mean, seeing, honestly, though, seeing Stephen Adams uh, be the player he's become too for uh, now for the Pelicans is great because um, I, think, uh, I, I think it's great if we just any representation from uh, down under is great. And I, I don't mind taking, uh, taking those Kiwis on board with us and saying, putting us all in the same bracket when they're performing well. <laughs> well, it's a it's such a vibrant, fun community to have around basketball. And as the Jazz have their Australian connections, it'll be good to have them into the fold with how available the NBA is now and everything around it, just growing the game. Australia, I'm sure, will be having a couple of Joe Ingles and Donovan Mitchell jerseys out there. What have you seen from this Utah Jazz scene? And what have Australians seen, if you're just looking from, from that six- <laughs> 60,000 view above. What have you seen from the Utah Jazz? Well, right now, I mean, I think uh, they're playing the best basketball of anyone in the league. And, and I think they're the only team, I believe, top five offense and defense, which is great. Um, the Utah Jazz, you know, they come in with expectations from where last season ended because last season didn't end all that well for them. You know, we know how that went. I know Jazz fans, I don't need to uh, remind them what happened, but I think it's a very good sign for a franchise that, you know, the coach came back, Quinn Snyder, Rudy Gobert gets that big extension. So the team shows faith in Rudy and he and Donovan Mitchell, who, you know, I'm only looking from an outsider, but we heard there was a little bit of tension there between the two star players. So what does the team do? Well, they can either, you know, move on from one of those guys or they can say, listen, that happens in every single team. There's no question about it that people clash, stars clash, you know, workmates clash, it happens. But they look at the, the combination of those two working together and they work on it and say, let's try to make sure that these guys can see, figure, it, figure things out and see what happens. And I think you're seeing now the benefit of that on the court because to me, Donovan and Rudy are, are so important to each other because you've got, you know, the star, you know, point guard slash shooting guard player and then you've got this star defensive player who's also very good 
uh, at the other end of the floor when he catches those alley-oops and lobs and the pick and rolls and, and the gravity that he pulls for that team that allows everyone else around them to shoot three-pointers, which is really what the Jazz's bread and butter is right now. At any one time during the game, the Jazz have probably got three 40% or better three-point shooters out on the floor, which is very, very difficult for other teams to defend. You know, whether or not that's your starting five or you've got a couple of guys off the bench, whether it's, you know, I think Jordan Clarkson's not quite at 40%, but he's, he's very close to it. Picking uh, up the rear at 38%. There you go. I mean, oh, I think we can, well, let's, let's round up. Let's round up. Oh. Let's be generous here. But the point being, you know, like if, yeah. if Joe's coming off the bench and, and Jordan Clarkson's coming off the bench and they're replacing, you know, a Mike Conley and, and, and Bogdanovich, whoever it is, it doesn't matter. You know, you're replacing 40% with another 40% guy who understands how to, uh, to, to perform. And, you know, the thing for Utah is they have that continuity, which I think is very important. If you look at the success of the San Antonio Spurs over the last 20 years, you know, what, what's been that one staple? And it's like, you know, the coach, and then you've had the star talent of, of Duncan and Ginobili and Parker. Now, the Jazz aren't quite at that level of talent right now, but I think it's very telling that the team is like, if you look at that roster from this season to last season, it's very similar. And I think that's important. And I think the biggest uh, improvement has come from just Mike Conley now having a season for Utah because a great veteran player at both ends of the floor in his first season after spending his entire career prior to that with the Memphis Grizzlies, I think most people, I, I certainly did thought, well, Mike Conley's such a, a veteran and such an unselfish player. He'll slot into that Utah team perfectly, but it didn't really work. And he got some injuries as well. So that also made it difficult. Now he's got a year under his belt. They've had some time to work on some things. And you look at him, and once again, as Mike Conley has been for a lot of his career, there's all-star buzz about Mike Conley because he's just such a valuable player for what Utah does at both ends of the floor. He'll probably miss out again, unfortunately, because that's kind of the way it goes. But it just shows that, uh, that the Jazz, again, saw that, uh, you know, they made the trade there for Conley. It didn't go as planned in the first season, but they didn't just say, all right, well, let's move on from that and let's try something else. Let's bring it back. And I think continuity is extremely important in the NBA. And that's what, you know, teams are striving for because if you keep changing the personnel, keep changing the players, it's very hard to sort of figure out from one season to the next exactly what your identity is and how you're going to play. At least with the Jazz, you know, I think their backbone is, is defense. That's where it starts when you've got, you know, the, probably the best rim protector or paint protector in the NBA there in Rudy Gobert. He's a two-time defensive player of the year. And then you've got other very smart defenders on the, uh, on the perimeter but then on the other end, you make it very tough for the other team to defend you because everyone spreads out, everyone shoots those threes. And if you, if you try to close out on one of those shooters and you leave someone like Rudy open, well, it's an automatic dunk straight away. So the Jazz have got lots of pieces, lots of things to be excited about, uh, lots, of, lots of things that other teams would want. But until we get to the playoffs, I think there's going to be still some skepticism about the Jazz just because of how last season ended. Now, a couple of years ago, they had an incredible playoff series win against the Oklahoma City Thunder, which was, a, which, which was an upset, really. They got that win. The year after against the Rockets didn't go so well. But now, uh, again, last season against the Nuggets, it looked great. It, it didn't, didn't end that well. But uh, again, I think if you look through history, it, most of the time, especially if you go back to the most successful team, the Chicago Bulls, you know, Michael Jordan took a lot of years to get over that hump there against the Detroit Pistons. You know, he had to go past the uh, Pistons. He runs into the Lakers. But by the time he got to the Lakers, he'd had several playoff heartbreaks along the way. And he talks about that now still. He says, if it wasn't for me running into the Pistons three years in a row, I don't think I would have won 
my six championships after that because it toughened him up. And I think that's the thing in this world we live in right now. You know, everyone thinks if you don't win the championship, then the season's a complete waste and you're, and you know, you're a bust. But the Jazz, I think, look at it a little bit differently and say, you've just got to keep on trying and you just need a little bit of luck and you need some things to go your way. But you keep that team the same with that all-star and all-NBA talent, I think you put yourself in a good position each season. You bring up the Spurs and what they've done. The other thing that people compare this team to, a little bit of those Hawks of 2015 uh, that were coached by Bud. The other one that they brought up on TNT was the Raptors, how nobody's going to give, give this team respect until they do it once the postseason uh, success follows. Where are you in, in this team and how they could translate what they're doing right now, playing phenomenal basketball to what happens in the postseason? Both good comparisons. And I feel I'm in a position to comment on both because I lived here in Atlanta when the Hawks won those 60 games and it was all that bud ball. That ball was like the Spurs East, they were called. You know, I think mm-hmm. they had four all-stars too that season. They played such incredible team basketball, you know, spreading guys out to shoot those threes and then defensively, Everyone was very, very locked in and it was great, but they got to the playoffs, had home court and got swept by LeBron. Now it's LeBron James. It's you know, there's LeBron. No, yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. there's no shame in losing to LeBron James. Um, and that's what happened. But everyone, it's, it, again, it's like Jordan in the 90s. If you lose to Michael Jordan, it doesn't mean you're a bad team or a bad player. Michael Jordan was just a, an incredible talent as LeBron James is. Now the Hawks, the, the, the one sort of problem with them is the following season, they brought that basically that same team back and then they sort of moved on from them. You know, Horford moved on, Millsap moved on, Corver also went. So the team basically felt we can't get past the Cavs as we are currently built. So they moved on. Now the Raptors is a very interesting situation because I lived in Toronto for nine years and I was there when, you know, two weeks into the season, it was like, oh, well, we're out of the playoffs already. You know, two and nine, Raptors suck once again. And it it even got worse than that, where I thought there was a real chance that they might go the way of the Memphis or the Vancouver Grizzlies. And actually, if interest doesn't maintain in Toronto and this team, no, no Americans want to go and play in Toronto, then they might just fold the franchise or move the franchise, whatever you want to call it, to an American city. But then when Masai Ujiri came along, you know, Lowry and DeRozan, uh, DeRozan was obviously drafted by the Raptors and then Kyle Lowry came along in a trade and things just started to click together. Dwayne Casey did a great job there as coach and they made it to the playoffs, you know, surprising people that they made it to the playoffs. And then they lost in the first round with home court advantage. I think they did that three years in a row where they lost in the first round with home court advantage. I know it was definitely to Brooklyn and then it was to Washington um, I'm not sure what happened that third season, but the point is, you know, the Raptors were like a sad sack franchise for so long. They finally had a little bit of success, but when you have that success, then people want more and making the playoffs wasn't enough. It's like win a playoff series. And then they couldn't do that for a couple of years, but Lowry and DeRozan came back again. They kept at it and they kept working until they eventually did have success. And then they ran into LeBron James in the conference finals. And what happened? Well, it was two, two, And the Cleveland Cavaliers pretty much smoked the Raptors uh, in six games after that. But then Masai Ujiri did decide, okay, I'm going to make a deal here. It's a risky move, but I'm going to go for it. And he makes the trade there with the San Antonio Spurs, gets Kawhi Leonard, knowing he's only on that one-year contract, but it's worth it because it's worth the gamble. And it does come together for the Raptors. The pieces all slot together. 
and they go on and win the championship. And it was like, honestly, I mean, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen that the Raptors went from being almost, in my opinion, out of the entire league as a franchise to then holding up the trophy. Uh, and it was just incredible. It was, it was disappointing for DeMar DeRozan, who's a, who's a Raptors legend. But in the business world of the basketball, it, it had to, Masai Jiri had to make a move like that and it paid off. And then Kawhi Leonard ended up leaving anyway for nothing. So, you know, the Raptors uh, took a gamble, it paid off and they won. But that's just more an example of how sometimes you just need sort of things to go your way. And they did go the way of the Raptors. And, and since, since, you know, the funny thing is since Kawhi Leonard decided to sign with the Clippers, you know, two seasons in his second season there now, you know, the Raptors down in the bubble uh, took the Celtics to seven games and they're still competitive there. They got off to a bit of a slow start, but there's no feeling sorry for themselves. And there's no like, well, we won our championship. Who cares? Like Masai Ujiri is, is, is very determined to make sure that they remain competitive. And so is Kyle Lowry. I mean, Kyle Lowry's gone from, he was virtually traded to the New York Knicks and that trade fell through <laughs> because the New York Knicks thought they were getting hosed in a deal. So it fell through. He stays with the Raptors and now you know, uh, my, my colleague, Jay Skeets, of course, thinks uh, Kyle Lowry is the greatest Raptor of all time. He may not be the most talented because I think when you look at, you know, Tracy McGrady and, and Vince Carter, those guys perhaps have more talent. But in terms of, you know, characterizing what the Raptors are, a tough team, a resilient team, that's what Kyle Lowry is because that's what his career has been. You know, the Grizzlies gave up on him, the Rockets gave up on him and the Raptors gave up on him until, until they had to keep him in that trade that fell through. So, um, you know, that's the thing with the Utah Jazz. Like if you, for me, ever since I started following basketball, you know, in the late eighties, uh, when they had Frank Layden originally, and then they had Jerry Sloan forever, this team has never been uh, just a, a disaster. They've never been a mess. They're, you know, they haven't always made the playoffs, but those Jerry Sloan years, you were like, you're getting 50 wins and you're getting a great defense and you're getting a tough, tough place to win in Utah. That's, that's just the staple. Now, obviously a championship or two along the way would have been even better, but that consistency, uh, so many other franchises would, would, would easily swap in a second of just winning 50 games every year and having a reputation that it's like, you go to Utah, man, you never just go in there and blow the jazz out, ever. You know, I know there was a little bit of a transitional period there after Jerry Sloan left and obviously when Stockton and Malone moved on. But ultimately, you know, the one thing about Utah is, you know, they're always in the hunt for the playoffs and, and now they're in that spot where it's like, okay, can they take that next step? do things fall their way uh, because if they can, you know, there's no reason why they, they can't go on to win the championship. Obviously the Lakers loom large because of LeBron. Uh, he's still playing incredible basketball, but you take the Lakers off the table in the Western conference and there's no team that the, the jazz should be afraid of at all. And I don't think they are. I don't think they are, but um, you know, you've, you've still got to go out there and, and take care of business in the playoffs. I just think of how great that run was for Toronto. I spoke to uh, Jay Onrate of TSN. Shout out Jay and Dan. Dan O'Toole, we love you, man. How they, that slow build culminated with Jurassic Park, with uh, all of the pomp and circumstance of getting to the finals and finally getting it done. How the lengths that they would put just to try and keep Kawhi, even if mm. it didn't, even if it didn't stay, they were offering up free Uber Eats or free Air Airbnb. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were doing it all. Yeah. You you can become a legend here, and I feel like that's very similar to what uh, Rudy and Donovan are trying to build here in Utah, where they can really cement themselves 
in almost a deified way with how connected the fan base is to the team with all that consistent winning that they had in previous generations to putting it on this 2021 squad. Yeah, well, and, and again, you if you say the Utah Jazz to anybody, the first two names that pop out, Stockton and Malone, Hall of Famers, Legends, uh, Dream Team members. Okay, so it's very hard to ever reach that level. But at the same time, if you look at the combination of what those two guys have, and Donovan has that star quality where this guy could, this guy could get you 60 any night, you know, when he gets hot. Uh, now, again, Rudy's not that guy. Rudy's probably not going to score more than 40 ever in a game if, if he even gets there because he's not a big scorer. But in terms of like a defensive intimidator, a rim protector, a presence, you know, like that guy who's like, when you go into Utah, if you go into the paint, you know you're going to get, you know, a, a, a shot blocked. Grant Williams. Grant Williams yeah. had that <laughs> shot on Tuesday where he just short-armed, he short-armed a, a floater. And yeah. he's like, oh, I know what you were looking at. You were looking at Rudy Gobert. And, and, you know, I've talked about this on our show a, a lot of times. Like, there's not a stat for intimidation, which means, you know, there, there's defensive impact. It's, very, it's a lot harder to measure defensive uh, statistics in the NBA. It just is. It's just harder. But how many times does a guy go into the paint and just decide, well, I'm not shooting this because it's going to affect my field goal percentage because I'm going to miss. I don't want to get blocked. Uh, so instead, I'll kick it out to someone else and they can miss the shot or they just create a bad shot or the possession becomes basically a dead possession simply because of Rudy's presence on the court. And not only that, when Rudy's on the bench, how many teams are like now's quick cash in now while you can guys, if you can get inside to the paint. I mean, Derek favors is an underrated uh, uh, defensive presence, but he's not the same as Rudy because Rudy, it's funny. I, I also talk to people. I say, uh, when you see NBA players in real life, they're, they're just different than what you see them on TV. But in real life, Rudy Gobert looks like he's nine feet tall. You know, he's long, he's thin, he's gangly, but he can also jump and he contests shots as well. That, that's what I think is really important. He's been dunked on a few times, but that, you, you need to live with that because of the amount of times that he's just turned away guys at the rim or in the paint because his presence just tells them like, there's no point in coming in here. You're not, you're not going to get a clean shot away. And if you do, congratulations if you knock it in. But it's, the chances are very low that you're going to be able to make that a, a consistent shot. And he's also grown into that role. Remember the first couple of years there, you weren't quite sure what you had in Rudy. But now he's really solidified himself, as I said earlier, as, as you know, most likely the, most, uh, the best uh, rim protector, paint protector in the NBA. So I, th- I think that's great. And I think, again, the Jazz, by giving him this huge contract, have said, we believe in you. You know, I know there's, there's always haters out there. There's always people who criticize for, for whatever reason. And, and Rudy gets a lot of that. But that doesn't mean anything if the franchise gives you that contract and says, we believe you're our guy going forward. And uh, this, is how we, this is how we're going to show it to you. I did the same thing with Donovan, of course, signing him. I mean, Donovan was a no-brainer. He was a star from the moment he walked onto the court in his first game. He, he's been an incredible player. You know, uh, could have, should have been rookie of the year. It's up to, you know, was Ben Simmons a rookie? Who knows? Who really knows? But, the, you know, very few people. And, and Donovan, in his first season, uh, as we were saying earlier, won a playoff series by upsetting the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder and, and, and showed incredible composure. So, you know, it takes time. Um, and, and, you know, very few players can come in unless you are a, a LeBron James and immediately take your team into contention. But as he continues to grow and, 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 and if the Jazz were able to do something that Stockton and Malone weren't, which is to win that championship with Rudy and Donovan as their two core pieces, then, uh, I mean, that, that would just be incredible to see how that would shift the landscape. 
for uh, Utah Jazz fans. I mean, of course, Stockton and Malone are legends. They're never going to be, um, you know, there's statues of them uh, out there in Utah. But if, if, if Rudy and Donovan were able to do the one thing that Stockton and Malone couldn't, make a very, very interesting conversation out there. We might have a new Mount Rushmore out here <laughs> yeah, exactly. if, if that were to happen because we have plenty of mountains to etch things in. You could put John, Carl, Rudy, Donovan if that oh, were to yeah. happen. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up here on Round Ball Roundup, heard on your podcast, if there are a hundred wedgies, <laughs> somebody's going to eat a basketball. <laughs> Can we make sure that this happens? Because when he said it, I was amazed that that's a phenomenal image to think of a human being eating a basketball. If we get 100 wedgies, and the Jazz have had a wedgie this year, we will actually hold him accountable and he will eat that basketball. Yeah, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw skeets under the bus here. He said it, so he can do it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to try to chomp my way through a leather basketball. I mean... I would love it if we got to 100. We're, we're on pace to set a record. I think our record is 53. We sent it about three years ago. I think that's what we ended up with. We're on pace for around about 62 right now, which is incredible because we didn't get our first one for a few weeks into the season and then they're just yeah. rolling in. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we still, it's still you know, a long, long, long way off there. But uh, if somehow it happens, we include playoffs too. This is not just a regular season feature. Okay, then, good. Uh, yeah, then, then, then we, we need every playoff series to go seven games and uh, maybe it can happen there. But yeah, Skeets, uh, I think, you know, he, he said it and then he was like, oh, I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm pulling for it. I want 100 because I want Skeets to have to try to chomp his way through one and, uh, and just see, see what he can do with that. Because uh, if you say it, you've got to go through with it. Well, and I don't want to see how we, we, we saw the craze on Twitter of, the cakes that everybody was cutting yeah. through where you thought it was something oh, else yeah. all of a sudden. Uh, I don't want a basketball cake <laughs> yeah. that he's cutting through and chomping. No, I want the real leather. I want him to bite through it and see how, <laughs> how it goes down for him. That's what I want to see uh, when we get a hundred wedgies. So do I, man. So do I. I mean, we, we, we've been doing our show now. Uh, well, Skeets and Tass and JD have been doing it 15 years. I've been with the guys now, uh, I think 10, I think this is my 10th season. And, you know, we've done a daily show, we've done thousands of episodes. So we, we say some crazy stuff. We don't know what the hell we're talking about most of the time. But uh, yeah, when Skeet said he's going to eat a basketball for 100, I'm like, all right, I'm going to remember that. I'll write, I'll write that one down and I'm going to hold him to it if we get to that point. Has there been a highlight over your time with the guys? Because you, you really have ingratiated yourself into basketball community. When you even mentioned that you were coming on a jazz pod you you saw people in the comments oh which which jazz pod are you going to be on which are you going to grace your presence with you guys are in this community is there a highlight for you over your time podcasting and basketball that that you can remember and you you want to bring up well well there's two i mean i'll, I'll say the first one um is is doing honestly doing things like this um because uh for, for that kid i was as an 11 12 year old when I was in Australia, America and NBA, it was, it was, it was like going to Mars right now where it was just like that, you know, that's not going to happen. So for me to be sitting here now, having covered the league in a professional sense for for 10 years as, as my job, I'm just, I I still sometimes just like, I can't, I can't believe I'm actually doing this, you know, like, I mean, those six years we had at NBA TV were just incredible seeing 
Isaiah Thomas in the in the locker room uh, in the uh, you know backstage and Charles Barkley and Shaq. I mean Shaq. One day I, I was in there with my son in the summer for some reason. He was three at the time. My son Shaq picked him up and he's giving him a little airplane ride. And I'm just like, I mean, I remember seeing rookie Shaq for the Orlando Magic, and and it was like, look at this guy. He's just enormous. Um, and so you know, I I still have those moments where I'm just like, I, I this is crazy, and I, and I get people from Australia who say, you know, can you give me some tips to get into that? And I'm like, not really, because none of what I did was planned, or there was no strategy. It was just a few little situations in life sort of presented themselves. I tried to take those opportunities, and and thing one thing led to another. Um, so it's not like it's a sort of there's a blueprint that I can pass on and then, then you'll, you'll, you'll be able to uh, cover the NBA yourself. But once we got to NBA TV, um, you know, I, I was always a, a big fan of the all-star weekends. And uh, one year we, uh, we were talking about our top 20 moments in all-star game history. And I, I brought up the three point shootouts and I said how one thing I noticed was, you know, NBA players would line up the ball to the, to the right-hand side of their um, body where they're shooting. And they would go out and, and shoot the racks. And I, I thought that was the most effective way to shoot because you get into this like rhythm where the ball, is, you know, just sort of like slots in there and you can shoot. And I, I didn't think anything of it. And then it was All-Star Saturday night and, and Steph Curry, who'd been in this competition three years in a row or three times in, in the past and never won it, actually went on to win it for this first time. And someone said to him, like, Steph, you've been in this three times and you haven't won it. And, and Steph, at the time, maybe wasn't regarded as the best shooter the game's ever seen. I think he's somewhere in that you know, top two or three right now. But someone said to him, you know, what, what was the difference? And he said, oh, well, I was watching NBA TV and they were going through the top 20 moments in uh, all-star game history. And they said how, you know, lining the balls up to the right might help you get into this thing. And, I, and my phone, because I didn't see it live, and all of a sudden I'm getting text messages and my phone's just beeping and they're like, Stephen Curry just said that. And, and I'm just like, you know, when you're just sort of like, all right, well, someone's like messing with me here. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, well, send me the link. I'm going to see this. And, and it didn't go up on NBA.com for half an hour or so. So I was trying to find a TV to watch it, but it was all live. There was no replays or anything like that. Then it came through. And so Steph didn't say my name and he didn't actually say the starters, but it was clear what he was referencing. And I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, Stephen Curry, you know, not only watched the show, listened to it, and then actually took something that I said, helped him, you know, incorporated that into his uh, shootout. And then he goes on to win this, the, the shootout. And he set a record at the time. And I was like, I mean, that, that's just the most incredible sort of connection and moment in my life that uh, I can say something like that. And it's affected one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And then a few years later, because I would do that three-point shootout myself for our show every year. And a few I've years... I've seen the clip. <laughs> well, a few I, years later, I, I, you know, we pitched the Golden State Warriors uh, on, on, you know, Steph being kind of like my Mr. Miyagi, you know, Yoda sort of uh, mentor. And I went out there and, 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 and I shot around with the Warriors. Well, I shot around with Steph Curry for like, you know, 30, 40 minutes, just me and Steph shooting threes. And um, I, I still tell my wife and, 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 and some friends, you know, who asked me about it, I'm just like that 30 or 40 minutes, like Stephen Curry is one of the most in-demand celebrities, athletes in the world. And usually it's kind of a scrum situation or it's someone like it, you know, ESPN or someone who's super high up, like a Rachel Nichols type who gets that exclusive interview. And I was on the court just shooting threes with him. And um, 
I just, I, again, I just sort of think, imagine someone at, when I was 12 years old came up to me and said, hey, hey, uh, guess what? Guess what? Um, this guy, Del Curry, is going to have a kid and uh, he's going to become, you know, an incredible shooter. And one day you're going to fly into Golden State, you know, or fly, fly into Oakland, shoot around with Steph. It's going to go up on NBA TV. And uh, it's like just, just an incredible moment. And um, yeah, I, that, that to me is, is clearly, uh, you know, the best the best sort of moment I had. I mean, I guess the only rival to that was uh, when I was a kid as well, Isaiah Thomas, I was a big fan of his because uh, you know, as for the Pistons, they were coming up and they, they beat the Lakers and he was, you know, he was, he's like my height. He's like, like a little bit taller than me. I think he's like six foot one. And when you see NBA players like a LeBron who's six, eight, it's like, they're just gigantic humans. But Isaiah Thomas is not a gigantic human. He's, he's a sort of normal sized dude. And at the finals uh, two years in a row, I was out there working for NBA TV and so was he. And, and we were just doing some uh, stuff on the court on an off day. And I was playing one-on-one basketball with Isaiah Thomas. And I'm like, I'm like this, you know, it's. Ooh, that, that's like spine tingling, how that yeah. turns out, how you were a kid watching him on TV in Australia. And then all of a sudden now you're on the same floor with him. It just, just really incredible stuff. And, um, and, and I remember at the time thinking like, you know, this is not going to last forever. Our TV show is not going to last forever. None, none of these things do in the media world. It's a very fickle business. And so when it did end, you know, you're disappointed, of course, but there's a part of me as well. That's like, well, I think I took the right approach that, you know, I tried to make the most of that while I could. And, and I have some memories like that, you know, with Isaiah and Steph Curry. And there was a few others along the way, you know, even Dennis Scott and Steve Smith guys that again, I, I as a kid, I remember Dennis Scott coming out of Georgia tech and it was like, Oh, this big guy shooting threes. One day down here in Atlanta, me and Steve, uh, me and Dennis Scott was just shooting threes together. And I'm just like, this is wild, man. This is this is wild. <laughs> well, I do say this, you know, with deep sincerity. We appreciate what you guys do at No Dunks. You will continue to get the shout outs on at Utah Jazz because we love your show. As always, check them out on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, they have merch. Where can yes. people get, get the merch that you're wearing right now? I am wearing one of our t-shirts. Yes, the Good Morning Sweet World t-shirt. Yeah, just go to basically uh, No Dunks Inc. Uh, go to any of our social channels and you'll find the links there from Linktree and you can go and, uh, and, and pick up some of your own merchandise. So we've got quite a collection of things out there. And uh, yeah, thanks to everyone who has supported us because uh, honestly, I wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for the support of, uh, of our listeners and viewers uh, across the world. That, that, that Ultimately, that's what it comes down to as well. I mean, you know, people have said over the time, like, oh man, you've made it, you've made it. And you're like, it doesn't feel like that because honestly, it feels like if it wasn't for fans, uh, you know, listening to the show, downloading it, sharing it, telling their friends, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it for a job and I wouldn't be in this position. So uh, it's incredibly humbling for me. And, uh, and again, to be actually talking to an official team website. I mean, I used to write to the teams. I, I, I wrote to the Utah Jazz. I wrote a letter. This, I, someone must have kept it. It's probably in the, in the locked away in the uh, archives there somewhere. What'd you write? Well, What'd so, you write? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I was like 13 years old at the time, but I, I remember I wrote first to the Lakers and they responded. And so, oh. yeah. So like they sent me a team photo and some stickers and things like that. And so then I wrote to like, uh, I don't know, you know, the Phoenix Suns or the Blazers or someone and they wrote back. And before I know it, I was like, all right, I'm just writing to every team, <laughs> every team. Um, 
you know, and, and that's one of those things when I talk to my kids, I'm like, they'll probably never actually handwrite a letter to anyone because it's, no. you know, your email, your tweet, your, you know, your message on, on any sort of a social media form. And I'm like, I used to just get these handwritten letters. Now they were pretty, look, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, the letter I wrote to the jazz was probably similar to the one I wrote to the Spurs or the Bucks or whoever it was. It just changed, you know, like I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, John Stockton, a big fan of Thurl Bailey, whoever it was. And, uh, you know, you just change a word and you, cause you're just hoping to get that recognition to get that team to send you back a letter that says, Hey, thanks for being a fan. Here's a sticker. Here's a, you know, whatever it is. And for me, I just held on to all that stuff. I've still got a lot of it. You know, I've got letters like a letter from the, uh, the Spurs and the Celtics and uh, the Hawks. It's just like, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for being a fan. Because again, like you, you would, I would mail this letter. It would take probably a month to six weeks just to get to the city. And then it would take another month or so for that uh, response to come back. So three or four months after I'd write a letter, if I got a response, I was just like, oh my God, this is just the most perfect thing in the world. So uh, to be actually now talking to utahjazz.com is, uh, the, I've, I've come a long way. We've got to find that letter. Yeah, we, will look oh, for, we will look for it. I'm going to go into the office. I'll, I'll try to find that letter from years ago. It's pro- yeah, it's, it's probably from 1989, 1990, somewhere around there. So it's 30 years old, but, but I, I, can, I can guarantee with about 99% surety that uh, there was one or two sent to the jazz. So Little uh, Lee Ellis. Exactly, yeah. Out, well, it would, have said, to... it would have said your number one fan down under, something like that it would have said. So. <laughs> Wait a minute. You were saying you were a number one fan of all these teams? Uh, yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay. I can't, you know. <laughs> all right, Lee. That's I've pro- enough. <laughs> I've, I've probably, I've probably given up too much information here. But uh, like I say, when, 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 the, when a team like the Lakers responds, then you're just like, well, everyone has to respond now if it's the Lakers, you know. So uh, anyway, yeah. This, this podcast is probably about three minutes too long, I think, now for me. <laughs> okay. And now I'm not even mad or, or sad about saying this. Duke Ellington fans, attack Lee Ellis on Twitter. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time joining Round Ball Roundup on LeeChuckJazz.com. Thanks very much for having me, JP. A lot of fun.